Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Raycon. Raycon started half the price of other premium audio brands, yet they sound just as good. And for a limited time, you can unlock up to 20% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner where you can attract interview and hire and do it all in one place. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com Peter. Today, the government released the producer price numbers for the month of October. On Wednesday, we get the same numbers for consumer prices. And of course, it's the consumer price index That's going to get a lot more headlines. There's going to be a lot more discussion because the public is more concerned about the prices they pay, not the prices that businesses pay. But of course, ultimately, businesses have to recover the cost of production from the consumer. In fact, they have to recover more than the cost of production because businesses need to generate a profit. So they have to sell their goods and services for more than it costs to provide them. So consumers should be concerned about the prices that producers pay, but they generally don't start to worry until those higher costs get passed on to them 
in the form of higher prices. Now, I initially wanted to hold off on this podcast and kind of get the CPI numbers so I can talk about both of them. But unfortunately, I'm so tied up on Wednesday from morning to night, I just will not have time to do a podcast at all. And so I didn't want to wait until Thursday or Friday to talk about the numbers. So I'm going to talk about the PPI today and I will get around to commenting on the CPI the next podcast that I record later in the week, probably maybe Friday or Saturday, not really sure yet at this point. But in any event, looking at these PPI numbers, they pretty much came in in line with expectations and the expectation was for a pretty big increase and that is exactly what we got. The month over month gain for October was 0.6. And that's what was expected. It was a little bit above the 0.5% gain from September. And by the way, the September increase was the lowest of the year. So that is the smallest PPI increase that we've had for the entire year. We're now 10 months into the year. And in fact, even if the smallest number was repeated every month, you'd still be looking at 6% increase in producer prices annualized, which is still a big rise. But of course, it's much higher than that because 0.5 was the low watermark for the year. So now we're trending back up with 0.6 in October. The year-over-year number now is 8.6%. That is a new record high. Now, I don't think they were computing this series back in the 1970s because I'm sure producer prices must have had a year back then where they rose by more than 8.6%. But ever since they started this formal survey, this is the highest year-over-year number we've ever had. And of course, this record is likely going to be broken by the end of this year because if you take the first 10 months of 2021, producer prices are up 8 in the first 10 months of the year. So if you annualize that, you end up with 10% year-over-year gain if you take the entire year of 2021. So we'll see where we end up. Maybe we won't make it all the way to 10% if the next two months end up slightly below average for the first 10 months. But in fact, look at how bad these numbers are. January was the worst month. We were up 1.2% in January. February, 0.7%. March, 0.8%. April, a full 1% gain. May, 0.9%. June, 0.9%. July, 0.7%. August, 0.7%. Then September, we went down to 0.5%. And October, we're back up to 0.6%. So my guess would be the next couple of months are going to continue this upward trend, we may not get back all the way to 1%, but I think we're likely to fall somewhere between 0.6 and 1% over the next couple of months, which should get that year-over-year rate to be closer to 10%. But if you look at the consistency of these big increases every single month, there's nothing about this string of numbers that any way suggests that what we are experiencing is transitory. I mean, the idea that inflation is transitory is simply wishful thinking at best on the part of the Fed. Of course, if you look at it more 
suspiciously, you would say it's just an outright lie, which might be the more likely of the two scenarios. Not that the Fed is just foolish and doesn't get it, but that they get it and they just don't want to be honest about it. And so they're lying and pretending uh, that it's transitory, which is what they were doing with subprime when they were pretending it was contained. Anyway, getting back to the numbers. So if you strip out food and energy, the month-over-month increase was 0.4. That was double the prior month increase. X food and energy year-over-year, right? The so-called year-over-year core, that came in at 6.8% in line with expectations. If you strip out food, energy, and transportation services, the monthly gain was 0.4 versus expected gain of 0.2. And in fact, the month before, it was only 0.1. So we really uh, picked up in that number. And year over year, 6.2%. These are big numbers. And more importantly, these are bigger numbers than we're getting in the CPI. If you're annualizing the 2021 PPI at about 10%, and the CPI is coming out at around 6%, maybe a little higher than that, There is clearly a pretty large gap between the prices that producers are paying and the prices that consumers are paying. And I've talked about that gap and the reason for that gap on this podcast. And if anything is transitory, it's that gap. I believe that the producers are going to look to recoup what they lost in 2021 in 2022. But it's not that prices are going to stop going up in 2022. They're going to keep going up. It's just that producers will be more likely to not only pass on the full extent of those price increases, but to catch up on the price increases that they should have imposed in 2021, but held off on because they were hoping that what they were witnessing was transitory because a lot of these businesses didn't want to rush out and raise prices if they were only going to have to roll them back later. And especially if they didn't think their competitors were going to match their price increases. Because after all, if you believe it's all temporary, why piss off your customers with a price hike that's really not necessary. You might as well eat it in your margins for a few months, weather the storm, ride it out, and then when the prices come back down, your costs go down, well, you never had to inconvenience your customers with the price hikes. And if some of your competitors are willing to ride it out and you don't, you may come through this worse off because you may lose some customers to those companies that absorb those temporary price hikes. But once all of the producers in the market understand that these price increases are not transitory, in fact, not only are they not transitory, they're going to continue, meaning that we're not going to get relief from prior increases. The prices that went up in 2021 aren't going to go back down in 2022. In fact, they're just going to go up even more Well, now all these companies no longer have any reason not to pass on these costs. And in fact, a lot of these businesses are going to get pressure if they're public businesses from their shareholders to raise prices because they can't just report that their earnings are going down because their costs are going up. They need a strategy to deal with those rising costs, and that is to raise their prices. And of course, a lot of privately owned companies businesses are going to be 
raising their prices. And it's not just businesses that are going to want to raise their prices. Workers are going to want to raise their prices because workers charge a price for their labor. We call it a wage or a salary, but those are prices and workers are going to want higher prices too because they're going to the store. They're going to be paying higher prices for everything they buy. So they need to go back to their employers and say, hey, I'm going to charge you a higher price for my wages. Now, what's the employer going to do, especially in a situation like today where labor is in short supply? A lot of people are no longer even part of the workforce. So there already is a lot of competition out there for workers. So if workers demand more money. A lot of employers are going to have to pay higher wages. And in fact, I've been reading a lot in the news, strikes are going on. Workers are actually striking right now demanding higher pay. And I think we're going to see more of that, both with organized labor going on strike or just regular workers just giving their bosses ultimatums. Look, if you want me to keep working, you got to pay me more money because I need more money to pay my bills. And if you won't pay me more money, I'm going to find another employer who will. And so you're now going to get this whole cycle going on of rising wages and rising prices and rising costs. Of course, all these things, whether you want to call them costs or wages, they're all just another name for prices. That's why the theory that prices go up because wages go up is all nonsense. See, that's how the Keynesians tried to take the blame for inflation away from the central bank and away from the money printing. And they try to say, well, the reason prices are going up is because businesses have higher costs and they're passing on those costs. But costs are prices. The cost of goods is the price that the business pays. Everybody's price is somebody else's cost. The same thing with wages. Wages are a cost, but wages are also the price that employers pay to hire workers. So to say that prices are going up because wages are going up, if wages are themselves prices, well, then you're basically saying prices are going up because prices are going up. So whether it's cost push or wage price spiral, if you actually just use prices, those theories are it's a price spiral or prices are going up because prices are going up. Well, that makes no sense. You can't explain rising prices by saying prices are going up because prices are going up. When you confuse the public and say, well, prices are going up because costs are going up or because wages are going up, maybe it sounds plausible until you understand that wages and costs are also prices just from a different vantage point. So what makes all of these prices go up? It's the central bank and all the money printing. It is the inflation that is responsible for prices of everything going up. But another thing that does happen as prices really start to go up is that people will start to buy things sooner rather than later. And that's where you get the concept of velocity of money. How quickly is the money spent? Because if you're confident that prices are going to be stable or maybe even are going to go down, there's no need to load up on stuff now. I mean, you could just buy it in the future when you need it. But if you start to become really concerned that prices are going to go up, then why wait to buy stuff in the future at higher prices? You could just buy stuff right now before the prices go up. 
And that may be one of the reasons that people think there are supply shortages. I mean, first of all, again, we have record products being imported into the country. But what may be happening is consumers are reading the writing on the wall. And when they go to the store to shop, they're not just shopping for the week or maybe the month. Maybe they're buying six months, a year out, because they now understand the dynamic that's in place in that people want to buy things before their money loses value. What's the point of holding on to money if the longer you hold it, the less it's worth? You're better off converting the paper money into things that you actually need. And that's also part of this dynamic that is going on. And this is going to gain traction. And that is the psychology of inflation where the consumer fully expects inflation and therefore is going to try to prepare for that the best way he can. Meanwhile, you've got the Federal Reserve still pretending that this is not happening, still claiming that inflation expectations are well anchored at 2%. What idiot believes that inflation is still at 2%? I mean, maybe if you look at the bond market and you think that the public believes this because the yield on 10-year treasuries is still so low, In fact, today, yields went down a bit. We're now back down to 1.432. Even the 30-year Treasury had a big drop in yield today. We're down to 1.822. How can anybody be foolish enough to buy a 30-year Treasury in the current inflation environment at 1.8%? I mean, obviously, if somebody is buying it, it's because they believe inflation is going to collapse over the next 30 years, I don't believe that for a minute. I don't think there's anybody buying those treasuries that actually believes that. It's got to be the central banks. It's got to be speculators just thinking that the economy is going to slow down because now the Fed is tapering and just assuming that the next slowdown is going to lead to a resumption of QE and it's somehow going to benefit the bond market just like every single economic downturn in recent memory has benefited the bond market. Traders are anticipating a slowing economy causing another flight into bonds. They're wrong. They're playing with dynamite here because the bond market ultimately has to blow up as a result of what the Fed is doing. The inflation genie is way out of the bottle. There's no way to put her back in again. The bond market should be crashing as a result of what's going on. In fact, look at oil prices again today. You know, there are a lot of people that were getting excited when oil went back below 80. Aha, it's over. Oil up $2.64 today. We're at $84.57 a barrel, very close to a new high for the year. The highest we got was 85.41. So we're less than 90 cents away from a new high, this is a very, very powerful bull market. And you know, if you look at where gas prices are now in most of the country, they're very close to all-time record highs. Even though in 2008, oil prices got to $145 a barrel, right? Gas prices at the pump were actually, I guess, a bit lower back then than they are now, even though the price of oil itself was substantially higher. So imagine what's going to happen to gas prices 
when we retouch the 2008 oil pie of $145 a barrel. We're going there. Look at a chart. It's inevitable we're going there. In fact, I think we're going way beyond that level. So obviously, a lot has happened to increase the price of gasoline over the last 12 years than the increasing price of crude oil. But imagine again where we're going to be at the pump when we revisit the 2008 high, let alone take it out. I mean, I think we're going to move up to $200 a barrel in the price of oil. Maybe not next year, maybe not 2022, but 2023, 2024, in time for that next presidential election. Imagine where gas prices will be if we got $200 crude oil. Of course, $200 crude oil is not going to be achieved unless we get a break in the U.S. dollar. And I have been waiting for the dollar to break down So far, it has not. I think, again, the main thing that has been propping up the dollar is the talk of the Fed tapering, or not only talk now, the Fed has apparently already started the taper, but the dollar has not risen. I think the dollar has already gotten whatever gain it's going to get from the taper talk and the taper itself. The only question is, when is the dollar going to roll over? Because gold is already moving up. I've talked about that on the podcast. Ever since the Fed started the taper, we have been creeping up in the price of gold. And in fact, even when we got that much better than expected jobs report, the price of gold went up anyway. We got above 1800 closed above it on a weekly basis on Friday. And we have continued to rally this week as I am recording the podcast on Tuesday afternoon. Gold is at 1832 up another $8 today, but we've now put over $30 of distance between the price of gold and $1,800. And nobody is talking about what's happening in the price of gold, but this really does have ominous implications for the dollar and for inflation. Whether you use them to pump up, wind down, work, or work out, Raycons are my go-to for on-the-go audio. And that's why I've teamed up with Raycon. For a limited time, you can unlock up to 20% off your Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash gold. With seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, you can start listening right away and keep listening for hours. The audio quality, it's amazing comparable to what you'd get from other premium brands, except Raycon start at half the price. The new everyday earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. I prefer pure mode personally because that's best for listening to podcasts, but you can also listen to blues and instrumentals. Balance mode, that's also good for podcasts, but also better for rock, heavy metal, stuff like that. And then there's bass mode, which is good for hip-hop, EDM, reggae, stuff like that. And remember, Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. So this holiday season... Get them something they can use for calls or music, for work or play, at home or on the go. Or pick up a pair and a spare for yourself. Trust me, you're going to use them every day. 
So go to buyraycon.com slash gold today to unlock exclusive deals and up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is only available for a limited time and you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash gold. Of course, everybody is focusing on Bitcoin, right? That is the sideshow that has captivated everybody's attention. In fact, Bitcoin this morning was trading above 68,000 per Bitcoin. So getting close now to 70,000. As I'm recording this, we're around 67,500 in the price of Bitcoin, but that has been getting a lot of attention. Although today, even though Bitcoin was up, a lot of the Bitcoin related or crypto related stocks were pretty weak today. In fact, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the stocks later, but I did notice a lot of weakness in that sector and a lot of the growth oriented names got hit pretty hard. Now, maybe it's just a reversal Tuesday kind of sell-off. We'll have to see how the rest of the week progresses. But I have noticed that the anti-gold rhetoric has really been stepping up as the price of gold has been creeping up, especially by Michael Saylor, who has now gone completely off the deep end with respect to his criticism of gold, because now his official forecast is for the price of gold to go to zero. Right, So gold, a precious metal, very rare, very precious, according to Michael Saylor, is now worthless. And why is gold worthless? Well, because we have Bitcoin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, what difference does Bitcoin make to the price of gold? Because Bitcoin, in reality, doesn't share any physical properties in common with gold. So you can't use Bitcoin to replace gold in any area of the world where gold is actually used. Now, Saylor would say, but you could use Bitcoin as a store of value because a lot of gold is held by investors as a store of value. Yes, But what value are those investors storing? They're storing the value of gold, the commodity, gold, the metal. Bitcoin has no value to store, so it can't compete with gold as a store of value. But it can compete with gold in theory as a speculative asset, except gold is not a speculative asset. There are other speculative assets that investors could speculate on, and that's what Bitcoin competes with. It doesn't compete with gold. But as the price of gold is moving higher, a lot of these Bitcoin bulls feel compelled to start diminishing gold because they see a resurgent gold as a threat to their narrative that Bitcoin is the new gold. In fact, not only has Michael Saylor been encouraging everybody to sell their gold, and he's been saying that those people who want to have some gold and some Bitcoin are wrong. They should have no gold and all Bitcoin. And so the smart thing to do is to sell all your gold and only own Bitcoin, which of course makes no sense because Bitcoin is highly speculative. Yet according to Michael Saylor, it's not speculative at all. 
it has absolutely no chance of going down. He thinks it's a guarantee return, which is another reason that everything he's saying is reckless and irresponsible. Look, I don't think people need to own any Bitcoin, but I've always said, if you want to gamble on Bitcoin and you want to put a small portion of your speculative portfolio into Bitcoin instead of gambling on other things, well, you could do that if you want. And if you get out in time, maybe you'll make some money. But I don't tell people to put money in Bitcoin that they can't afford to lose. Sailor is saying, put the money you can't afford to lose in Bitcoin, even though there's a good chance that you're going to lose it. And if you're going to be all or nothing in either gold or Bitcoin, then the obvious choice is gold because gold is not going to go to zero. Despite the fact that Michael Saylor thinks it's going to go to zero, gold is too valuable a metal to ever be worth zero or anywhere close to zero. But there's a number that I wanted to uh, throw out there because not a lot of people talk about it because they always talk about Bitcoin is going to flip gold, meaning that the value of Bitcoin is going to take all of the market cap of gold. And I think gold's market cap is now around 11 and a half trillion dollars and bitcoin is 1.3 trillion dollars so basically bitcoin has to go up tenfold in order to get gold's market cap and so that's where you get these big pie in the sky forecasts well hey if bitcoin is just going to achieve the same market cap as gold well it's going to go up 10 times except they forget that of gold's 11.3 trillion in market cap only about $2 trillion of that is actually held by private investors. So Bitcoin's market cap is $1.3 trillion. If Bitcoin's price doubled, it would already exceed the amount held by investors in gold. In fact, the entire crypto market now is about $2.9 trillion. So investors already own more in crypto than they own in gold. So from that perspective... The crypto market has already flipped gold in that it's already bigger than gold when it comes to investors or speculators. Because you can't count all the gold that's used in jewelry and say that Bitcoin is going to take that market cap. How can it take that market cap? You can't use Bitcoin to make jewelry. Now, some of the gold is held by central banks, but central banks have shown absolutely zero indication that they're going to move their gold reserves into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is not going to make any inroads into that. But it's already made a huge inroad into the private investor market. You have more money in crypto right now than you have in gold among investors. Now, I would argue that these are different investors and they look at these markets very differently. I think the gold investors look at their investment as an insurance policy, as a safe haven, as a hedge, as the lower risk part of their portfolio. In contrast, the people who are holding on to 2.9 trillion worth of cryptocurrencies view that as a speculative asset. Or even if they don't view it as a speculative asset, the returns that they're expecting would suggest that it's highly speculative. Because if you're holding Bitcoin or any other crypto and you think it's going to 10x or 100x, then obviously you have to realize that anything that can go up that much must be highly speculative. Now, sometimes I talk about gold going up five or tenfold. I talk about $10,000 gold. But whenever I talk about $10,000 gold, I always put it into perspective. 
I remind people that gold is not going to go to 10,000 in a vacuum. Everything is going to go way up, not just gold, so that the real price of gold will not rise nearly as much as the nominal price. Now, I do think that gold prices will rise faster than other commodities. So maybe if gold goes up 10x, other commodities may only go up 5x so that the actual price of gold has doubled. And I mainly think that's going to happen because I think gold is so undervalued right now, given the mania that we have in financial assets and the lack of fear. So people who should be hedging in gold are not. And maybe some people who should be hedging in gold are speculating in crypto. But I think when all these bubbles pop, you're going to see a mean reversion with respect to gold. And you're going to see gold probably overshoot on the upside, actually, relative to a lot of the other commodities that are also going to be going up in price. But when people talk about Bitcoin going up 10x or 20x, they don't talk about the dollar crashing. In fact, Michael Saylor now talks about the dollar being the main reserve currency, that the dollar is going to become a crypto dollar, but it's still going to be the primary currency, the reserve currency for the world. Just somehow both the dollar and Bitcoin are going to thrive in tandem with each other. And Bitcoin is going to go way up without the dollar going way down, which doesn't make any sense at all because it's actually impossible for all that purchasing power to be created in Bitcoin unless, of course, nobody sells. And if everybody agrees to never sell their Bitcoin, I suppose it can have any market cap. But of course, at some point, somebody tries to get out and that's when the market starts to crash and then everybody else starts to get out or tries to get out and then there's nobody to take the other side of the trade. But the real problem for Bitcoin isn't gold, although I understand why Bitcoin advocates have to constantly diminish gold because Bitcoin's sole use case supposedly is that it's a replacement for gold. It's digital gold. It's a store of value. But since Bitcoin has very little in common with actual gold, but lots in common with all the other cryptocurrencies, that's the real threat. You know, there's almost 14,000 now cryptocurrencies. The exact total as I'm looking at coin market cap is 13,877. Now I know that some of these have marginal differences from Bitcoin, right? They're not all identical, but each and every one of these cryptocurrencies has more in common with Bitcoin than gold. And so the real threat to Bitcoin isn't gold, it's the infinite number of competing cryptocurrencies that can be conjured into existence. What we have now is just a small down payment on what we will have in the future, assuming this bubble doesn't pop. Of course, once it pops, then people will stop trading cryptocurrencies because there won't be a big market for them. But right now there is a market for them, and so they keep on creating them. But all of these other cryptocurrencies, anybody can advocate that they have all the properties that Bitcoin has and that they're every much digital gold as Bitcoin. I mean, you can make the case that thousands of these cryptocurrencies are better than gold, right? Because that's what Bitcoin advocates say. Hey, we're better than gold. We're more divisible, right? We're more portable. We're more fungible. We're more scarce. Well, there are thousands of other cryptocurrencies where you can say the exact same thing. But the reality is, does it matter about any of those properties? None of these 
cryptocurrencies are better than gold because none of them can perform the functions of gold in the real world. You know, Michael Saylor's tweet today, he tweeted out that if you believe in sound money, you should sell all your gold. The implication there is that gold is no longer sound money, that Bitcoin is sound money. Bitcoin isn't sound anything. I mean, it's not money and it's not sound. In fact, Saylor may not know this. I've talked about it on the podcast, but the expression sound money, the reason that expression was coined is because of the sound that a gold coin makes when you drop it. You can drop it on the floor, you drop it on a table, and it's going to make a sound. That is in contrast to a paper bill, right? You drop paper money on the ground, it doesn't make a noise, right? But if you drop hard money, and again, why is it hard? Because it's physically hard. It makes a sound. Well, Bitcoin makes no sound. It's just as soft as any fiat currency. But the reality is, it's not about believing in sound money. If you're buying Bitcoin, you have to believe in fantasy money because that's all you've got. You have to suspend your disbelief and you have to accept the premise that something that has no value has value just because a bunch of people say it has value. And I know people say the same thing about gold. Gold only has value because people say it has value, but that's not true. Gold has value because of the properties it has as a metal that make it so much more valuable than other metals that don't have similar properties or other commodities. People did not just decide to make gold money and then believe in it. People believed in gold and owned gold long before it became money. The reason it succeeded as money is because it did a better job than all the other commodities that were also used as money. Well, Bitcoin was never a commodity, was never used as anything. People just magically proclaimed that it had money. And this delusion can only perpetuate so long as everybody is willing to accept it. But at some point, reality rears its head. It always does. And all of these delusions come to an end. When it comes to business, a good leader knows their limits. They know how to delegate. They know when they're needed and when they're not. And when it comes to hiring, Indeed can be a founder's right-hand man. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. Because at Indeed, you can do it all. You can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring journey so you can find talent with the skills you need through the tools like Indeed's instant match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed makes it easy for star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. Pick what skills are important to you from over 135 assessments and get a clear view of your top talent's abilities much faster. Assessments make the interview process smoother for everyone. Talent doesn't need to prove themselves again, and you can dive deeper into talking about what's important to you. With Indeed Assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12%, according to Indeed Data Worldwide. In fact, the thing I like best about Indeed is that it simplifies the hiring process and lets you do it all in one place. Finding great talent doesn't have to be your second job. You can do it faster and better if you partner with Indeed. 
So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Want to circle back though and talk about inflation because now President Biden just interviewed Lyle Brainer potentially to replace Jerome Powell as Fed chairman. Now, Brainer was appointed by Obama. So she's a Democrat. And obviously, the Democrats would rather have one of their own as Fed chair. Powell, of course, is Republican. He was appointed by President Trump. And so if it were up to Biden, Brainer would be heading the Fed. But I think he may still leave Powell in place because that is the safer political move for him to make. Now, the betting odds, if you go to predictit.com, Powell is still the favorite. He's at 71 cents. But Brainerd, she's up at 31 cents. So she was much lower than that until we had this interview. Now, I'm pretty sure that even if she doesn't get the nod to be chairman, I think she's going to get promoted to vice chairman. So maybe she would have a little bit more influence. If you look to, again, on predictit.org, the five alternative Fed chairmen that are under consideration, three of them are African-American men. And two are women. Looks like they happen to be white women. Lyle Brainerd is definitely white. But to me, it seems like the only criteria to replace Jerome Powell is that you're not a white male. So white males need not apply. Anybody else, you might have a chance at the job. So I think Powell's whiteness and his maleness could also work against him. But I think the reason that Biden will leave him in place is because it's risky to change horses because you never really know, right? It's always the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. The markets seem to be okay with Jerome Powell. So why rock the boat, right? What is the political payoff to Biden for rocking that boat? Because suppose he doesn't renominate Powell. He puts Brainerd in or somebody else. And let's say the markets don't like it. The markets tank. Something bad happens. Well, it's his fault, right? Because he's the one that replaced the Fed chair and now something bad happens. If he just leaves Powell in place and something bad happens, well, he can blame that on Trump because, hey, I didn't appoint Powell. He was already here when I took office. And, you know, I didn't want to risk making a change. I mean, I never would have appointed him in the first place. But since he was already there and on the job, I just left him in place. So it's easier for Biden to blame Trump if something goes wrong at the Fed than if he puts in his own guy or gal in in this case, and then something goes wrong. Well, it's all him. I mean, how's he going to blame it on somebody else when he just changed the Fed chairman, and when Powell was in power, everything was fine. If he changes things and now something goes wrong, he's going to have to take the blame. Plus, also, if the economy tanks or inflation runs out of control, which are both very likely to happen, Biden can run against the Fed, especially if Powell is still chairman. But if he puts his own person in the position of Fed chair, it makes it harder 
for him to run against the Fed when it's his Fed. If he can brand it Trump's Fed, it makes it easier. So that's the main reason that I think Biden will just leave it alone because he doesn't want to risk something bad happening as a result of a change that he makes. Of course, Donald Trump did rock the boat, and I think he later regretted doing it because when Donald Trump became president, the incumbent Fed chair, Janet Yellen, was a Democrat who was appointed by his predecessor, Barack Obama. And rather than leaving her in place, Trump decided to replace her with his own guy. Now, of course, the situation there was very different because Joe Biden didn't spend his entire presidential campaign bashing Fed Chair Powell the way Trump spent his presidential campaign bashing Janet Yellen. I mean, he accused Janet Yellen correctly, I might add, of doing political things, of pursuing a monetary policy to make Obama look good, that she inflated a stock market bubble that she deliberately kept interest rates artificially low to goose the economy on Obama's watch. And that had she pursued a more independent, honest monetary policy, all of the economic data under President Obama wouldn't have looked nearly as good. So it was all the byproduct or the consequence of a bubble. And Trump said that it would be different under his presidency that we would have a real economy, not a phony economy. And so given all of the criticism he had as a candidate of Yellen, it would have made no sense for him as president to reappoint her. So he brought somebody else, Jerome Powell, who he claimed would be different, a truly independent Fed chairman who wouldn't do political things, who wouldn't pursue policies merely to make Donald Trump looked good, that we were going to have a real economy under Trump and we would have a real independent Fed pursuing sound monetary policy. Of course, no sooner than the very first rate hikes where Powell actually tried to take a little bit of the alcohol out of the punch bowl, Donald Trump immediately started bashing his own guy, claiming that the Fed was crazy, that there was nothing to worry about, there was no inflation, that there was no reason to raise interest rates. In fact, not only did Donald Trump demand that rates go back to zero, he actually demanded negative interest rates. He thought that zero was too high and he demanded more quantitative easing. So while Trump criticized Yellen for spiking the punch bowl while Obama was president, he then started criticizing his own appointee for trying to drain some of the alcohol out of the punch bowl once the punch bowl belonged to him. See, he had no problem criticizing a alcohol-infused punch, an alcohol-spiked punch bowl when it was Obama's, but the minute he took ownership of that punch bowl, he wanted more alcohol in it than ever. He wanted an even bigger party than the one he criticized Obama for throwing. Of course, it would have been a lot more believable had Trump left Yellen in place and then had Yellen raised interest rates. Well, maybe he could have bashed her and it would have looked a little bit more honest because he was bashing a Fed chairman that he had no role in 
nominating or appointing. Yes, he renominated her, but only because she was already there, she wouldn't have been his handpicked guy. But when he started to bash his own guy, it didn't really look genuine. And I think that may have been one of the problems that confronted Trump when he ran for re-election in 2020. A lot of Americans didn't buy all the Fed bashing because Trump was bashing his own nominee. But obviously, if we had Brainerd in place, she is an even bigger dove than Powell, right? I mean, because she's a Democrat and she's going to support their big spending plans by printing more money. But of course, Powell is doing everything he can to be a team player, right? He's there. He's keeping interest rates at zero. I mean, yes, he's tapering, but barely. And I think Powell is only tapering because he thinks that if he didn't taper, that could cause a problem because the markets would be concerned as to why the Fed isn't tapering. What are they afraid of? So to kind of prove that everything's okay, they're tapering anyway, even though probably if left to his own devices, Powell would probably not want to taper because he doesn't want to take the risk. But, you know, I'm sure Powell will come up with an excuse. He always does. And whoever runs the Fed, they never seem to run out of excuses. When they have to turn the presses back on, they'll find some clever reason that they're doing it. Uh, They'll never accept responsibility for having put the economy into a situation where permanent QE is now a necessity. I wanted to go back, though, and talk a little bit about the stock market. One stock in particular that I think bears watching is Hertz Rent-A-Car because Hertz actually went bankrupt during the pandemic, right? Because nobody was renting cars, have a lot of debt. Nobody is traveling. No one's renting cars. So obviously it was very bad for their business. And so they went out of business and then the stock came back to life. They restructured. And just today they relisted the stock on the NASDAQ and they sold $1.3 billion, right? They took in that new money and they issued new shares at $29 a share. So that's what the investors paid to get Hertz stock. Now, they thought they were buying the stock at a discount because the day before, Hertz shares closed at $32.62. So you got a bargain, right? If you bought them at $29, except they opened at 26 and a quarter and they closed at 26.17. So if you bought that bargain, you're already down about 14% on that purchase. And if you remember, the last time Hertz was in the news, it was because they placed this 100,000 car order with Tesla. And that sent Tesla stock surging. And it didn't start coming down until yesterday. And in fact, it came crashing down today. The stock was almost down by 12%. And that followed a drop of over 4% yesterday. So now you have a two-day drop in Tesla of 16%. If you want to measure the decline from its all-time high, we're now down 17.5%. So about 2.5% away from a fresh bear market in Tesla. Now, what started the sell-off? Well, it was a tweet on Sunday night, Elon Musk launching a poll. He asked his Twitter followers, of which there are tens of millions, whether he should sell 10% of his Tesla stock. And he said that he would abide by the results of that poll. Well, 
those who thought he should sell 10% of his stock outnumber those who thought that he wouldn't. And so if Elon Musk is going to keep his word, he now needs to unload 10% of his Tesla stock, which is a lot of stock. And so the markets are pricing that in and they're coming down. Now, the reason that Elon Musk claims that he's going to sell this stock is because he wants to pay higher taxes, right? He wants to cooperate with the administration or with Democrats' desire that billionaires like him pay higher taxes. And he pointed out that the only way he's going to pay higher taxes is to sell his stock because he doesn't take a salary. All he takes is stock. And therefore, if he's going to send money to the government, I mean, I guess he can borrow more money against the appreciated value of his stock, but he recognizes how risky that is because stock prices can go down. So the only responsible way for Elon Musk to write a big check to the U.S. government is to sell a big chunk of his Tesla stock. Of course, it's also possible that Elon Musk is just taking advantage of the opportunity that he's been given to basically say that he's only selling his stock because he wants to pay taxes and it's the only way he can generate the revenue. And he's using this quitter poll as cover to do what he wants to do anyway, which is diversify out of an overpriced stock. I mean, so much of his net worth is tied up in shares of Tesla and Tesla is so dramatically overvalued. It makes a lot of sense that Elon Musk would want to unload a good chunk of his holdings, but he's afraid of sending the wrong message to all his followers that own the stock because if they see their leaders selling, they may question the wisdom of holding on themselves and they may want to sell. But if he makes it clear that the only reason he's selling is so he can pay taxes and that but for that desire, he wouldn't be selling, but he's just trying to make everybody happy and be the billionaire who pays his fair share, he gets to sell his stock without sending a signal to the rest of the shareholders that their leader believes the stock is overvalued and is trying to get out himself. And that way, everybody else will stay on board the ship while Elon Musk is able to abandon in safety. And maybe he's also trying to prove a point because if he sells a lot of stock, the value of that stock is going to come crashing down. And it's not just going to affect him, but it's going to affect all the shareholders, including a lot of shareholders that the Biden administration doesn't want to tax. There's a lot of small investors who are loaded up in Tesla. And if you force Elon Musk to liquidate a bunch of Tesla so he can pay a higher tax bill, that's going to impact lots of people who own shares of Tesla. In fact, the same thing would happen across the board with all of these stocks that have appreciated so much. Most of these mega billionaires only have their billions because of the market value of their stocks. And if they start liquidating their stocks to pay taxes, that is going to substantially reduce the market value of those stocks, which will also reduce their paper wealth. But it will also reduce the paper wealth of a lot of smaller investors who have been riding on their coattails. And maybe that is kind of the message that Elon Musk is trying to send to give people a little taste of what might happen if a bunch of billionaires were forced to sell their stock to pay taxes. And of course, a lot of people think, well, that's good, right? Because the government can use that money and it would be really good if 
Elon Musk sold all that stock and sent all that money to the government. Except transferring that much money to the government is not a good thing. I mean, first of all, if Elon Musk is going to sell his stock, some investor has to buy the stock, right? The money has to come from somewhere. So those investors who are going to buy stock from Elon Musk, what else might they have done with that money if they didn't use it to buy Elon Musk stock, right? That money might have been invested productively in the real economy. Instead, it was basically funneled to the U.S. government through Elon Musk. But the result of a big sale of stock and writing a big check to the U.S. government is that more resources move from the private sector to the public sector, and that is never a good thing. The government, sure, it's going to spend the money, but the private sector would have invested that money far more efficiently, far more productively, and it would be better for the long-term health of the economy. Sure, the government can blow the money and spend it, and we can have even bigger trade deficits, right? The government can hand that money out to people to buy more stuff from China, and we can have more empty containers piling up on the coast that we have nothing to do with, right? We can build, I read one article in Texas, they're using these empty containers to build a border wall. They can't figure out what to do with them. Meanwhile, we're not shipping them back to China because a lot of the container boats, the container ships, they're going back with a lot of empty containers, but they're not going back full of empty containers because a lot of the empty containers aren't loaded back onto the ships because apparently we don't even have the manpower to do it. And they got to quickly bring those empty containers back to China so they can fill them up again. But of course, if they leave all the containers over here, eventually there won't be any over there. And then it's going to cost a fortune to get them over there. They're going to have to make even more containers, which is going to cost even more money. And all these articles, the crazy thing about these articles about the containers piling up is nobody writes about how ridiculous this is, how this is evidence of a complete farce of an economy in the United States where we are so dependent on imports. But if we simply took a lot of investment capital out of the markets and sent it to government to mail out checks to people, all of these problems would get worse. And now as I'm reading a lot of articles too, about people who are upset that we can't figure out a way to tax the billionaires because, you know, the pesky constitution is getting in the way of a wealth tax or trying to redefine income to be unrealized depreciation. And so it's just not fair. And all these billionaires are just going to escape taxation and we need a way to tax them. You know, there is a way to tax the billionaires. I don't know why nobody wants to talk about it. Maybe because there's a limit to how much you can get. But the best way to tax billionaires and millionaires, in fact, the best way to tax anybody is through articles of consumption. Because all these billionaires, even if they don't generate any taxable income because they don't sell their stock, they borrow against it. And again, I'd like to see interest rates go up. If we didn't hold interest rates artificially low, it would be too expensive for these billionaires to borrow all this money to buy the things that they want. And so they would have to sell some of their stock in order to finance their lifestyle. And then the government would get some extra income tax as a result of that. They are able to avoid selling their stocks because they can borrow so cheap. That's because of the government. But even if they're borrowing money, they're buying stuff. They're buying yachts. They're buying private planes. They're buying exotic sports cars or 
designer clothes or expensive jewelry. They buy a lot of high-end art, rare wines, cosmetic surgery procedures, or maybe even they fly into space, right? They're doing all sorts of stuff. The government could impose excise taxes on the purchase, the rental of any of this stuff. And then billionaires would pay taxes when they spend their money, which is when you want to tax them. If you're gonna tax people at all, whether they're billionaires or average people, you wanna tax people based on what they spend, not based on what they earn. You wanna tax them based on what they take out of the economic pot, not based on what they put in, because you want people to put as much as possible into the pot, because that makes the pot bigger and everybody else can take out more. So the best way to tax people is when they start drawing out of that pot. When billionaires earn a lot of money and just reinvest their billions in expanding their businesses, they're not personally using that wealth for their own benefit. When they use their billions for their own benefit is when they spend a portion of it. When they buy stuff for themselves, that's when they're reaping the rewards. That's when you tax them. Because as long as they refrain from doing that, take a guy like Warren Buffett. What's the point of taxing Warren Buffett? I mean, he's basically letting everybody but himself benefit from his billions. The guy lives a relatively frugal life. He doesn't live in this huge mansion. He doesn't drive an exotic sports car. I think he drives a pickup truck. I mean, I'm sure he's got his own plane, but it's probably not that exotic of a plane. He's a pretty down-to-earth, humble man, despite his billions. So the vast majority of Warren Buffett's wealth is not being squandered on consumption. In fact, he's not even spoiling his children. Most of his children are barely inheriting anything. They have to go out and earn their money themselves. It's not like he's fathered a bunch of playboys that are out there philandering around and just blowing all the money they inherited. So the society is benefiting. To the extent that you raised Warren Buffett's taxes, you're not gonna diminish his lifestyle at all. What you're gonna diminish is his ability to invest his money wisely in the economy. And Warren Buffett is a far better steward of the wealth he's accumulated than the government would be. And to the extent that Warren Buffett is charitable, right? And a lot of his wealth ends up going to fund charities. It's philanthropy. The charities that Warren Buffett funds will do a far better job of helping people than any government charity ever could. Government charities are extremely inefficient. Maybe 10 cents out of every dollar ends up going to people in need. The other 90 cents is consumed by bureaucracy. Whereas it's the other way around in the private sector, maybe 10 cents goes to fund the charity and 90 cents goes to the recipients of the charity. Plus private charities try to wean people off charity so they don't need it anymore. Government charities try to entrap you. They wanna make it so you're dependent on the charity so you'll keep voting for them. So government charity perpetuates poverty, whereas private sector charity helps end poverty. But of course, the biggest thing that billionaires do to end poverty is by helping to produce more goods and services, making the investments that make labor more productive so that the free market lifts people out of poverty. So you don't want to take away the wealth of billionaires just because you think it's not fair that they're not paying their taxes. 
If you want to tax them, tax them when they spend their money. Now, yes, you're not going to raise nearly as much money as if you just take a direct tax on their wealth, but that's exactly why the framers didn't want the federal government having direct taxes. They wanted the government to be small. They wanted the government to run predominantly on excise taxes. The only time they thought they would even go for a direct tax was during a war. And that's why they made it so difficult to raise one because they made it subject to the rule of apportionment. No, the best thing about excise taxes is that they are self-correcting as to abuse, right? Because there's a limit even to billionaires. If you raise the sales tax on a jet too much, well, maybe even the billionaires will balk and they won't buy the jet. But obviously there is a point where the extra cost is still worth it to the billionaire. If he wants a private jet and he's spending $10 million, $20 million on that jet and you throw an extra million or two of tax, that's not going to stop the purchase. But obviously, if you try to put 100% or a 200% tax and now you make that $20 million jet $40 million or $60 million, maybe it won't be bought. But a 10 or 20% tax is not going to stop a billionaire from buying what he wants. And the same principle applies to the goods and services that ordinary Americans buy. If the taxes are reasonable, people will pay them. If they're unreasonable, if the government tries excessive taxation, well, then people will stop buying the products that are being taxed and then the government won't get the revenue. See, the problem with the direct taxes, you can't avoid it. If you tax something directly, then you're stuck, right? If you just tax property and I own property, I have no way of escaping it. I've got to pay the tax. Even if I sell the property, somebody's going to buy it. And now that buyer is going to be stuck paying the tax. You can't avoid it. If it's a capitation tax, it's a head tax. You can't avoid that. Same thing with an income tax. I mean, you have a job, you're going to have income. The only people who can avoid the income tax in a way are the super rich because they avoid the income tax by avoiding having income, which is exactly what these billionaires are doing. They're not generating any income, and so they're not having to pay an income tax. Instead, they're borrowing money off of their appreciated assets. Borrowing money is not income because you have to pay it back, right? Whenever you take out a loan, like if you go out and get a mortgage, some average guy goes out and borrows two or $300,000 to buy a house, the government doesn't say you have two or 300,000 of income, no, that's not income because you still owe the money back. So when you borrow money, you don't pay an income tax on it. So the same thing if a billionaire borrows money against the value of their stock portfolio, they don't pay any tax on that either because in theory, they still have to pay the money back. But average Americans, if you're just working for wages, you can't avoid the income tax. You need your salary, you need your wages to pay your rent or to pay your mortgage to feed your family. And so you can't avoid that direct tax unless you cheat, right? Unless you just don't report your income, right? You earn some cash and you don't tell the government about it or you inflate your deductions. In fact, again, part of the Build Back Better plan, and in fact, I think even built into the infrastructure plan is more money for IRS agents supposedly to empower them to go after the billionaires because they claim the billionaires are cheating on their taxes. The billionaires don't have to cheat on their taxes. They can avoid the tax legally. There's plenty of ways to do that. And they don't want to take the risk of cheating on their taxes because they're too high profile, right? The people who are cheating on their taxes are middle-class Americans, 
people who work in the gig economy who get paid cash and don't report it, small businessmen who earn some cash and don't report it, or who claim a lot of their personal deductions as business expenses. Why are middle-class Americans cheating on their taxes? Kind of because they have to. Because if they paid their taxes, honestly, they couldn't afford the rest of their bills. The government is so expensive, their taxes are so high when you take the payroll taxes, social security taxes, the federal income tax, the state income tax, it's very hard to make ends meet and honestly pay all the government expects you to pay. So a lot of Americans cheat. In fact, there was an old expression that the income tax created more cheaters than golf. And that's probably the case. But at the very high end, there's no reason to cheat and there's no reason to risk cheating when you have so many legal ways to minimize your income tax by minimizing your income. But average people, again, working for wages, they can't minimize their income legally because the only income they have is what they earn working. And that is what is taxed so heavily. So instead of being upset that the millionaires are paying too little, just be upset that the average guy is paying too much. And instead of trying to figure out how we can make the rich pay more, how about let's figure out how to find ways for everybody else to pay less. And the only way to do that is to shrink government. Government needs to be made a lot smaller. We have to slash government spending. We shouldn't be passing more programs, more entitlements like we're doing now. We already have more than we can afford. We need to be cutting back on the programs we already have, not adding new ones. But as long as we're going to do this, the average American is going to be taxed. And if the politicians don't have the guts to do it honestly, we know they're going to do it dishonestly through inflation. And that's where I started this podcast talking about inflation. Inflation is a tax. It's a tax that hits hardest the people who can least afford to pay. You know, these billionaires that I'm talking about, they have lots of assets. They'll keep on going up in value with inflation and all the money they borrow to spend because they don't want to generate taxable income. Well, all those debts get wiped out through inflation. So the more inflation the government creates, the wealthier the billionaires get because their assets go up and their debts get wiped out and they still don't pay taxes. Meanwhile, it's the average guy who's getting screwed. He doesn't own these assets. He just owns his labor and he sells that for wages and the wages never keep pace with other prices in the economy. So even though you get paid more, you earn less. The only real solution is to make government smaller. Unfortunately, not enough Americans realize this, which is one of the reasons that I do this podcast is to try to set the record straight so people understand the real source of their problems and they may do something about it, which is why I encourage everybody who listens to my podcast to try to get as many of their friends to listen to. Thank you.